Hello and welcome to Charity Chat. I'm your host, Danielle Guntaliki. This is the first episode of three that we're going to be doing around having difficult conversations. We hope this series will serve to offer you insight, practical actions and ideas about how to continue or begin the challenging work of creating a more equitable charity sector. The reality of this series is that things are complicated, can be confusing and also uncomfortable, but we hope to work with you and share learnings from experts in the industry about how we can address these issues. In this episode, I'm joined by John Conejo, an activist and campaigner who speaks eloquently on this topic. He's previously been a guest on Charity Chat, episode 80, where he shares the work that he's been doing with Charity So White. We appreciate him joining us again. We also have Lily Lewis joining us, who is a facilitator and is currently running workshops called Let's Talk About Race. She's also the founder and CEO of the Procresi Initiative, a grant giving organization that works in prevention and rehabilitation of absence addiction treatment and criminal justice. The thoughts, ideas and expertise they both share in this episode left me with lots to think about, reflect on and consider. I hope you find this episode as useful and thought provoking as I did. This episode is brought to you by our platinum sponsors, Charity People. Here are Lily Lewis and John Conejo on getting difficult conversations started and creating safe spaces. Hi, this is Danielle from Charity Chat. So with me today, I have Lily and John. Uh, This is part one of a three-part series, and we're discussing getting difficult conversations started and creating safe spaces. Um, Welcome to you both. Um, If you could briefly introduce yourselves, a bit about the work you do um, and why you're passionate about the work, that'd be great. Um, John, do you want to go first? Yeah, sure. Uh, So yeah, my name is uh, John Cornejo. My pronouns are he, him or they, them. Uh, I'm an anti-racism consultant with JMB Consulting, but I'm also an organiser with Charity So White, um, who is a sort of grassroots POC-led collective doing anti-racism work in the sector. Um, my background is more in sort of campaigns and communications, and that's my passion. But um, lately, and sort of in this year in particular, I've been focusing a lot more on doing uh, anti-racism work with uh, charity sector clients and kind of having difficult conversations, kind of both teaching what racism is, helping people deepen their understanding of it, but also trying to get um, create spaces for these difficult conversations and try and push some of the dis- discomfort that can arise from sort of talking about race in the charity sector. Um, so, yeah, good to be here. Brilliant. Thank you. Uh, Lily? Hi. uh, Yeah, my name's Lily Lewis. um, Pronouns she, her. Um, So I run an organisation called the Procresi Initiative, which is a philanthropic uh, grant giving organisation. And we work in addiction treatment and criminal justice. And all the work we do, all the funding is through a racial equity lens. Um, I also lead um, workshops primarily for white people called Let's Talk About Race as a co-facilitator to discuss and kind of reflect and process our relationship with whiteness, white supremacy and racism um, in a somatic way um, and do kind of various other kind of board positions and uh, system change stuff within philanthropy in the sector as a whole. That's great, we've got tons of knowledge with us today. Okay, so to get started, um, like I said, the, this episode's about getting difficult conversations going and creating safe spaces. So 
I guess we're also focusing on race specifically. Um, the series as a whole is going to look at other other areas of protected characteristics and types of work. But just so we can keep this conversation a bit more focused, it will it'll be primarily about race. Um, so I guess the, the first question we have is how do organisations begin to create spaces to openly and honestly reflect on their current practices and also encourage their staff to both professionally and I think personally commit to kind of learning about systemic racism so that they can make changes um, and then this can both progress their lives as well as like the work of the organization, I suppose. Should I kick off? Um, I think, well, to be blunt, I think a lot of organizations do it badly. <laughs> um, but I think um, the key thing for me in terms of how you approach this um, is really about vulnerability. And I think it's less for me about how like there's a lot of stuff that has to happen before you have the conversation in order to have it right it's not something you can kind of just sort of decide yeah we're going to talk about racism and it's going to happen like there's quite a lot of personal work that leaders have to do in particular to think through why why are we having this conversation why is this on our agenda why are we talking about it at this slt meeting um is it just that we're reacting um, to trends such as Black Lives Matter and kind of looking at it from a sort of our organization needs to talk about this? It's sort of this very reactive space, or is it actually about really deep reflection on things that have been happening in the workplace, how racism has touched um, the work of the organization? You know, there's lots of introspection and sort of reflection that needs to happen. And I think setting your intentions behind it, thinking really clearly what kind of change you want to see within the organization, what you're kind of open to, um, and also kind of leading by example. Because I think a lot of the time when people talk about race, we get this kind of whiteness response of like um, either guilt or um, shame or kind of concern that we've done something wrong. And that is always going to be the energy that's in that space. So you need to kind of, come at it from a place of acknowledging your own mistakes as a leader as an organization in terms of what's happened in the past and kind of build an environment where if you're willing to be vulnerable about that as a leader and if you're willing to show that vulnerability bring people into that space hopefully people are more willing to kind of do that same reflection and sort of work collaboratively towards the aim of transforming um, the organizational culture and kind of mission and sort of building anti-racism into that mission. Yeah. What more can I add to that? I think, yeah, I just totally agree with everything that's been said. I think when we talk about trying to bring openness and honesty to these spaces around these issues, I think what we first need to acknowledge is that it can be really dangerous to do that sincerely in, in these spaces for a lot of people, because we um, work in a culture where these characteristics really aren't, aren't welcomed. Um, and so I think exactly, John, just as you were saying, you know, to take a step back first before starting and to be reflecting on that work, I think it needs to come from the board level and the CEO level, because if, if these people are not taking the personal commitment and the personal step back to evaluate their own relationships, they're not going to be, be able to create a culture within their organizations where staff or volunteers are going to be able to do the same. Um, again, kind of just echoing a bit what's already been said, I think there's just so much fear and shame that comes into the work from a lot of white people. And I think it's, it's really trying to understand and process on a deeper level that it's going to be really messy and we're going to get it wrong. And that's okay. That's just part of the work. And it's learning to apologize and to be accountable for that. 
um, you know, doing the work and getting it wrong isn't an attack on someone's identity. And I think as we begin, I'm sure in this episode to talk a bit more on digging into white supremacy and kind of how those characteristics kind of play out, I'm sure we'll get to that. Um, these are just opportunities to learn and do better. They're not attacks on, on who we are and our identities. Um, you know, um, I think a way to start if someone is super lost is to literally just sit down and make a list of all the reasons why your privilege has enabled you not to do this yet. Because lots of people say, oh, I don't know where to start. I'm so overwhelmed. Like that's white fragility coming in. We can Google it. We know how to do this. It's the fear and the shame and all the uncomfortable feelings that we don't want to lean into. Um, but yeah, it has to be led by people in power at the organization, I think, and being really careful because this work, I think it's just slow and steady. It's not a quick fix. It's, it's a lifelong commitment. Mm. yeah and I just want to build on that quickly um because I think asking questions like that is, is a really important part of that sort of really sort of reflecting on um why you're here why you're doing the work and I think a lot of the time we do that in quite a performative way uh, or it's sort of in a very backroom type of way where maybe some discussions have happened in leadership or it's like there's an EDI plan that is presented or there is a product there is a thing that we want staff to do and that's kind of the level of conversation but this is a lot deeper than that it's around um really being honest with ourselves around um our failures what's going wrong even just asking really uh, a simple question is why why is our organization so overwhelmingly white but actually really reflecting on that and thinking about the power dynamics at play thinking about the biases at play when it comes to recruitment um how we perceive uh talent and success um bringing all of that to the table rather than just jumping to the I'm not racist defense and kind of digging below that and sort of digging underneath the surface of that issue is a really key part of that. Yeah, thank you both. I think that was, um, yeah, so much information there. And I think something to pick up on that hopefully we'll both explore a bit later on in this episode, but also in um, a couple of the other ones that are coming is around that getting your team on board and that role that often employees who aren't high up, who aren't on the board, who aren't in that hierarchical position, how do they kind of trigger these things how do they get them going how do they kind of get them started so yeah maybe we can pick up on that again um a bit later um so I suppose as well to kind of continue on from what you've both kind of acknowledged about that resistance denial uncomfortableness uh fear and shame and things I guess it's how um how do you actually create spaces for uh black Asian and minority ethnic employees and volunteers so obviously we acknowledge that this work needs to be done but I think um it comes at a cost um it it's often acknowledged that they're harmful spaces for ethnic minorities. And I think there's something really important to unpack of how do you, when you're doing this work and all the attention is turned to doing the work, you've got people that are living day to day with like the systematic oppression and things. So um, yeah, I just kind of put that to you guys and what your thoughts are around creating those spaces. Um, I can kick off. Um, I think Every every training session, every, particularly every anti-racism training session I do, I finish uh, just with a point of saying that, like, uh, listen to and believe people of colour. And I think that's a really important factor within this that we really don't do enough. And I think it sort of touches into racial gaslighting and denialism and just sort of how all the different ways that we're not necessarily ready as a sector, as a culture to face up with how uh, systemic racism operates and impacts our lives. Um, 
because like spoiler alert black brown people black and brown people in your organization are talking about this we are having conversations around the sort of day-to-day microaggressions they're facing um frustrations within the workplace uh, feeling that maybe someone um sees them in a particular way because it has somehow links back to racism and like these conversations are happening and i think you it's more about like organizations and leaders seeing value in that and creating um spaces where that can happen in a in a safe environment and sort of um can lead to something like help help your uh, poc staff self-organize help them um have those safe spaces where they can just discuss uh in their own time in their own agenda what's going on help them build up um um, their own plans in terms of whether it's um, education work they want to do, uh, help them have a role within uh, the broader anti-racism journey for your organisation. And I think it is quite powerful for leaders in particular and boards and, and managers to kind of give space and um, power to that, to those sort of rooms, because um, so often, and sort of my own background as well, working in the sector has been just um, talking to black and brown friends, self-organizing, trying to push the agenda, trying to push leadership to sort of take uh, racism and discrimination seriously. And that's where the real toxicity comes from, where you have to push this as a brown person because um, the white people in leadership aren't really acknowledging it or realizing it. And that's where you get a lot of talent drain. That's where you get a lot of energy drain. That's where sort of the real frustrations can set in. And if um, you just build the right spaces for that in the first place and um, acknowledge that as valuable work that needs doing and is adding value to the organization that's a really great place to start mm. yeah definitely um i think as well if um just before you add lily um to kind of build on that um a bit about like what do you feel like a safe space looks like um it's yeah I suppose that the podcast we're hoping to kind of give really tangible learnings I think sometimes especially if you're there's only a couple of black or brown people in your organization or one for example sort of thing how do you kind of do that for yourself or for um, a few of you so yeah I just wanted to add that in there as well yeah um I think that can be quite hard to determine because I think there's there's a lot you can do from a more kind of policy and kind of HR perspective in terms of um, setting intentionality saying this is a safe space we want um, telling people that we want them to feel that they are able to share everything um there's all these sort of things that we can say as leaders but I think ultimately it comes down to organizational culture and leadership styles and kind of what's going on generally in terms of whether that seems legit or not um and I think, again, this is one of those areas where you have to kind of be a bit more vulnerable as a, as a leader. You have to really showcase and build trust amongst um, sort of your staff that you do take racism seriously, that you do sort of see um, that there are problems at play, that you do genuinely want to understand how racism is playing out in the organization, that you are willing to listen and sort of um, take on the challenge of potentially deeply transformative change for the organization in order to sort of grow um, into more of an anti-racist direction. Um, and that takes time. And that's really difficult to foster in your staff. It is just around um, how we have conversations around this generally. Um, but I think just kind of building the space um, and trying I don't know, I guess try not to control it so much. <laughs> I think I've, I've seen a lot out there in terms of um, anti-racism groups or equality and diversity groups or just um, BAME staff networks kind of being developed across the sector where 
it's clear that management are trying to sort of set remits and, and limits on it in terms of this is the thing that we want it to do. We want it answerable to this person in a senior leadership position who is white because we have a diversity problem. And there's all sorts of issues that then start popping up. Um, and it can be difficult to kind of force this into kind of a corporate um, landscape and kind of environment where you kind of do need a space that kind of sits on its own, is able to determine its own agenda, its own pace of change, its own sort of um, comfort levels in terms of what we're sharing, what we're discussing. Um, and you kind of have to have a bit of faith in that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think saying a space is safe doesn't make it safe. And it's so obvious, but we have all been in those groups where the first thing that is declared is this is a safe space. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, I think that isn't, yeah, there's obviously not a concrete answer, right? Even though a lot of the characteristics of, of racism and whiteness can often be clear cut, there are individual dynamics with, within each organization um, you know, we all see organizations making their subcommittees can, you know, just of volunteer kind of people of color within the organization, um, which which I think can be really dangerous, um, especially if that's just done alone. I think often people, especially if they're volunteering to do this within the organization, people of color should be offered to be paid for their time to do that extra work, because this is painful emotional labor for a lot of people that white people, you know, myself as a white person will never be able to fully grasp. Um, so I think that's also important to hold in mind when people go down that route. Um, I think having white only spaces as well is very important because um, doing this work on, on a genuine level will bring up really uncomfortable feelings for white people at the organization. If a person of color is feels safe enough, genuinely safe enough to actually be honest about their experiences, it's not gonna feel comfortable for white people. So we need to be having white only spaces to be taking our fears and discomfort. So we're not just pushing them on people of color, the organization or within our external life, wherever that may be. Um, I think having learning groups, accountability groups within white people, um, to make sure we're doing the work and processing it on an emotional level so it doesn't come out in microaggressions and other ways as it's continuing. And then safety, hopefully over time, can be established. It doesn't just happen. It happens slowly over time. Um, yeah, I, I just want to underline uh, Lily's point around sort of paying um, staff and kind of seeing value in that work because that is so important. But I think there's also nuance in it in terms of like there is um, sort of BAME spaces in terms of um, spaces to sort of uh, network and socialize and kind of share frustrations and kind of organize from. That's a really valuable space. Um, and there we need to be really careful about where that crosses the line into EDI work, into actual sort of anti-racism work, into sort of cultural change, people and culture work within the organization. And that is something we need to be really clear on in terms of um, that needs to be covered, that needs to be paid. When I think of all of the stuff that I did, uh, particularly at Amnesty, <laughs> which I spent sort of five years at, uh, that I did, and a lot of uh, sort of my friends who are people of color within the BAME staff network um, did, 
and thinking about what my day rate as a consultant is now <laughs> it's sort of it's it's ridiculous in terms of like how much we're expecting people of color in an organization to do and how little value we place on that labor and I think we need to kind of really have those conversations with managers in terms of like how much work are we expecting of people what value is that adding and make that be reflected clearly within uh, both sort of title pay uh, grading the whole works yeah definitely I think um I think we'll pick up on that again a bit later as well in terms of that accountability and also where responsibility lies in getting these conversations started um I think as well like what Lily was just saying about um uncomfortable spaces and, and safe spaces leads really well on to like the next question that we're going to look at around um being able to identify the difference between a safe space and being uncomfortable so I think um like you were saying about white only spaces the idea that there's a necessity to create a space where white people feel comfortable to, to discuss issues and be honest and be frank and kind of work through and learn. But it's also that thing of they're going to then feel uncomfortable and that space between being uncomfortable or is it unsafe? And I wonder what you guys think on that. Lily, you kick off. I'm smiling because it's like, <laughs> God forbid white people feel uncomfortable or unsafe. <laughs> um you know, I, I I think, you know, myself coming into this work as, as a white person, um, we need to develop a thick skin. I think we are used in used to in society having a lot of social capital and having a lot of social power as white people. And any time that gets taken away from us in, in any way, um, it feels unpleasant and we are not used to that. We're not used to doing that kind of work. And so it feels very raw um, in ways that people of color and other minorities have to experience on a daily level um, and just have to deal with. So I think having transparency around what accountability looks like within the space and, you know, for an example, within the workshops that, that I co-facilitate, we do a social contract at the beginning, you know, and, and we discuss as a group, what does it look like to feel safe? What are the rules? You know, are we coming every week? You know, what if someone doesn't do the homework or whatever it is? You building it together. Um, people learn differently as well. People share differently. Some people like to do more one-on-one. Some people feel more comfortable speaking in an open group. So just taking into account the different levels that we're at when we all come to, to these actual kind of spaces together and the different experiences that we're bringing. But I think it's more bravery that is needed for white people um, because our experience of safety is, is super high. <laughs> within society so we need to get um, a lot more comfortable in that discomfort um, and being kind to ourselves in the work as well because it's no use to anyone if we just go into shame and fear because that is when we hit a wall and a block and we don't come out of it and then you don't do any work and that's not useful so being compassionate practicing self-care but being firm and holding ourselves and our fellows accountable to the work I guess um I want to add to that because like you know the women's suffrage movement was un uncomfortable to men <laughs> you know like transformative societal change organizational change um, does not come from a place of comfort and I think if we are sort of centering comfort in this way if we're centering like having nice conversations about racism where no one feels offended no one feels hurt is massively massively missing the point because actually 
we need to practice as a sector how we hold these uncomfortable conversations, how we have these spaces, how we work through that discomfort and sort of um, like start challenging ourselves and our own behaviors, reflecting on sort of how um, we have participated within and kind of upheld white supremacy and um, racism over our, over the year over the years over our work. Um, and that is really difficult. That is that is really challenging, and it and it really comes down to how you set that culture, how you challenge the prevailing culture that um, is in place at the moment. Uh, I think that social contracting that sort of really works can be really good. Um, sort of how you open up a space, how you set that space is, is incredibly important in terms of like how people will come into it. Um, particularly in the age of sort of uh, lots of Zoom meetings and things, and but even in face-to-face, -face, it's just sort of having a purposeful discussion around what is this space going to be like? Um, how we deal with discomfort, how we sort of build that more open and honest culture is a really important um, thing to sort of spend a fair bit of time on at the beginning. Yeah, thank you. I think I think that's um, just so insightful. There's so many different ways, but mm. it needs to be needs to be done. And like you say about a thick skin, it is that I'm imagining different people reacting to different elements, say even of this conversation and getting like a defensive wall or worrying about things or even even for myself, I think it's, how do you make sure you're saying something right? Which I think also touches on an interesting um, an interesting area. I don't know if we want to go into it right now, but around colorism as well. And that there's, there's a, a scale, there's different people have different experiences, their cultures are different. And there's also combating that within the, 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 the space and the sector, especially with community work and working with different communities about um, people of color can still be racist. There is elements of, not understanding the impact of what you're saying and being hurtful in what you're saying in some cases. I don't know if either of you want to add to that. Yeah, that is a really important point. And I think something that isn't really talked about enough. And I think, um, again, I think we need to look at it more as kind of a, um, how whiteness uh, is, is a sort of structure within society, how we all kind of participate within it and have a relationship to it and how we all in some ways kind of contribute to white supremacy culture. And I think, um, you know, a lot of different communities, um, like history and context comes into it, colonialism had the different ways that sort of whiteness came to be perceived as the norm and kind of the ideal um, across the world. And I think colorism is still very much a thing that you sort of see play out in lots of different ways across different cultures. You know, thinking about myself, as a fairly light-skinned uh, Latin American person um, and sort of the history of colonialism, the sort of uh, pure blood kind of narrative that came in from the Spanish and how sort of all the caste systems that came about in terms of relationship to whiteness and sort of uh, being European, like all of these ideas prevail over the, over the centuries. Um, and I think everyone, white people, people of color, sort of no matter who you are, needs to think about our relationship to whiteness, need to think about how um, white beauty standards are impacting us, how um, sort of white, um, white standards generally, uh, professionalism is often very, very white coded. The ways that we're expected to behave in the office is very much um, often centering whiteness. And it's sort of reflecting on how um, our own behaviors, our own actions, our own sort of being, um, speaks to that and reflects that and sort of um, thinking about the work that we need to do to transform and decolonize ourselves as well. Um, there's no easy answer to sort of how you tackle colorism, but it's just getting to a place where you can challenge yourself um, when maybe 
you're judging someone a bit more uh, harshly because they've got darker skin than you or sort of um, a family member is sort of talking negatively because of sort of colorism and dark skin sort of being um, seen in very negative ways in a lot of different ways. Yeah, you don't have to be white to mm. internalize whiteness. Um, we've had uh, quite a few people within our workshops who in the past, um, before we um, made it a white, a white cohort moving forward, who are people of color and white passing people. Um, and I think, I think this is the thing once we start to educate ourselves around how white supremacy and racist functions at a systematic level, it's, it's in, ev it's in the air we breathe or the water we drink, you know, like every, like everyone says, you know, with the media, everything we're picking up, you know, John, as you were saying within, you know, white beauty standards, it's impossible not to be impacted by it, no matter who you are within society, like sexism, you know, as a, as a woman growing up, you internalize that. Um, yeah, so I think it's impossible not to be impacted by it. And yeah, a lot of friends and colleagues of mine, you know, I think it, it's really difficult when people talk about internalized racism and how that impacts their relationship with colorism. And I think it's, it can be really, really painful work for a lot of people. I think that's really interesting, um, bringing up sexism as well. I heard someone, um, I was listening to another podcast and they kind of mentioned the idea of you can't live outside of the patriarchy. Like, and whiteness, as you say, is just the the standard you're living within sort of thing it's the structure that everything's kind of built around that's kind of what needs to be um explored but yeah great um so yeah if we just move on to a bit more about charities as well so the next part's about how do you think charities can play an effective and efficient role in creating this change making space and i suppose to kind of add to that is um there's been quite a lot of conversations about the role that charities can and should play in terms of say political spaces and things so it'd be interesting to get your um perspectives uh lily yeah i think you know so we've been talking about um different kind of characteristics and aspects of white supremacy um and i think like for me what i found really really helpful is the toolkit on white supremacy um that is online that you can access by temi oken that is really really useful and it has a whole bunch of um characteristics within that that we can identify with like within the workplace to kind of use as tools to kind of break down our relationship with this stuff because i mean when i think of the charity sector i think of organizations as a whole and that includes like social enterprises as well it, in my mind it all kind of merges into one because I see a lot of um, young leaders especially people of color they don't want to be associated with the charity sector anymore um, because of the power dynamics um, that it represents and the history of it so they want to move into working within social enterprises but I think I mean, the typical questions, right, would be thinking about how we value staff and like our volunteers, how can create, we create a space where we can play, where we can create. Um, but all of these things, all of these changes cannot be possible unless we think about changing the system in which the charity sector was designed in. And that is white supremacy. Um, it's a bit of a broken record, but it's not. It all it all comes back to this. And unless I think we kind of just zoom in on that and look at how the sector has been created in that image, we are not going to be able to achieve justice in the way that we set out to. If we really examine the history of philanthropy of the charity sector, how it is designed and how it continues to operate until we break 
that relationship with white supremacy, how we continue, um, for example, as white people to enable, uh, to benefit from that, to contribute to that, um, we're not going to be able to create a new system that is beneficial for everyone. Um, so again, I think it just, it really has to come back and start with that personal work and just breaking it down with our own personal relationships to the system and what that looks like, how it's been shaped, and then breaking down to the practical actions of, of how we can start that learning and unlearning journey. Yeah, and I think origin stories are really important here. And I think it's both around what the origins of the sector are actually come from, but also the stories that we tell ourselves. Uh, you know, this narrative of like um, charity workers being good people because we do good work, all of this stuff, then like the sort of almost toxic niceness that is at play throughout the sector. That's a big part of like what we tell ourselves in terms of um, we do good work, we're trying to help people, we're trying to sort of lift people out of poverty, we're trying to help um, transform these people's lives. All those narratives um, are deeply rooted uh, in that kind of story. But when you sort of really link back and really analyse really where charity comes from, it is um, sort of um, particularly in the UK and particularly in terms of the dominance of like uh, UK um based charities in the global kind of nonprofit space, um, you see how the wealth and influence that was gained through colonialism and through sort of systemic oppression across hundreds of years leads to that sort of cycle of feeling um, we need to help these people. You know, it's, it sort of, it comes, um, it's sort of past the point where we're sending missionaries to kind of civilize uh, people in, um, um, in the rest of the world and more to, um, we are going to use charity and kind of the sort of systems of charity to kind of help uh, solve these problems that really we created. And even though your own organization's origin story might not go all the way back to that, um, it will ultimately link back to that core ideal of we are in a position of power or privilege, or we are able to help and we have a duty to help these uh, poor people or whatever the sort of uh, specific benefactors are. But we never challenge your question, like, why is the situation the way it is uh, for our beneficiaries? Why do we need to do international development work across Africa, across Latin America, across different parts of the world? You know, we're not asking ourselves these difficult questions and we're not sort of really in the business of uh, really deep change. And I think that is why charity must <laughs> be a part of this conversation and really has to lead this conversation, because fundamentally, everything that charities do, regardless of what your mission is specifically, links back to some form of societal change. We are looking to fix the problem that we are, that we are seeing. We're looking to try and sort of uh, help improve the lives of specific communities, specific demographics. We are looking to change society. And we cannot build a better world without looking at the broad issue of white supremacy, without looking at systemic oppression, systemic racism, without looking at how capitalism over the years has led uh, to the situations that we're in at the moment and like these are really scary really deep conversations but we need to start having them and we need to be centering them in our work mm. it's really really fascinating I think like so there's so so much to unpack there um I wonder on one of those those points you made about um charities and the work they do I wonder if there's any examples you can think of of the types of work that are moving away from that um historic like savior kind of complex the like one thing that comes to my mind is uh, the move to things being more based on lived experience and that being valued i wonder if you guys have any other examples or thoughts i think 
The thing with lived experience um, is that it has obviously like so many things turned into a buzzword. And I see a lot of colleagues of mine with lived experience of certain issues. Often they are put into a position where that then has to become their identity within the profession and within the field. And I think we are starting to talk about trauma, but we're not really understanding it yet. And the trauma that can often come with lived experience. So I just I just wanted to pick up on that as well. Um, because there aren't enough healing spaces um, to be prioritizing people with lived experience doing the work. Um, because I think we, we can also start, and this is obviously a very kind of white characteristic as well, to objectify people with lived experience, which is so often people of color. Um, I see this a lot within every sector, obviously within charity, with every field within the charity sector, obviously I specifically work in, in addiction and criminal justice. Um, it's, it's, it's very common and I, and I don't think it's being addressed. And again, not valuing people's time you know, with lived experience. And again, these, these are often mostly people of color within the sector and they're staying at the bottom of the organizations, the people with lived experience, and they are not um, getting promoted. And when we look further and further up the organization, the whiter and whiter it gets. Um, I forgot your original question, but I just wanted to make that point. But I'll remember once John starts talking about the stuff. Yeah, I mean, we could talk about lived experience for a very long time, but I want to sort of bring up a different example and that sort of international development world um, has broadly for a while been looking at kind of moving close, moving closer to the ground. And there's all sorts of really annoying, um, very neo-colonialist terms floating around in terms of how you do this work, but it fundamentally kind of moving away from being headquartered in London and moving particularly research and sort of work into sort of the countries that we are, that they're working in, which is great. But I think in practice, what are we seeing? We're seeing um, white people being sent over to African countries or wherever we're operating. And we're still seeing really unhelpful power dynamics at play where it's still sort of uh, London-based staff that are calling the shots and are sort of uh, dictating the work that people um, with lived experience are able to do in their own countries. Um, and I think we need to think more deeply about this and how we tackle sort of power uh, and sort of privilege and oppression within our organizations, within our cultures, than just thinking about the optics and just thinking about sort of if we open up more offices around the world, we'll look a lot more, a lot more awake. <laughs> you know, we need to look a lot more deeper than that. Mm, definitely thank you I think that's um like you say you could talk to your blue in the face I suppose about the different areas so, um we'll leave there for now but then hopefully we can touch on different things in other episodes um I suppose that the next question was to kind of look at um how organizations you've worked with you've both probably touched on this slightly um already but how organizations you've worked with um or worked for have talked about racial inequality in equity work and the kind of commitments you're kind of seeing the sector begin to make or trying to make um and then I guess it kind of as it progresses on what does action look like and when do you need to start seeing action rather than um talk and commitments I'm trying to think of where to start because well there's kind of two different areas to go into so like with Charity So White over the last sort of uh, two years or so that we've been around we have focused heavily on kind of pushing anti-racism onto the agenda for the sector 
and sort of really sort of hope um, pushing for leaders in particular to have conversations around race to really sort of talk about it to really set clear um, public facing targets and sort of approaches and commitments around this work. And that I think has really transformed um, the sector, I think, along with kind of other trends and other sort of things happening in, uh, across uh, that time means that we are talking about it a lot more openly. And what I'm seeing um, on the sort of consultancy side as well is kind of the other side of that of like, we've got a lot of people in the sector who have kind of made commitments or are sort of in that headspace of like, we want to tackle uh, racism, we want to do more about this. But it is just the sort of where do you start point and sort of where it comes uh, in a lot of ways, the work that needs to be done is so far removed from the kind of um, corporate professionalist way of like doing things um, that it can be really difficult to sort of think about that. And I think we can land on very kind of tokenistic approaches such as announcing commitments or announcing EDI plans or kind of like um, looking for products that we can create ourselves and announce. Um, but what I'm seeing more with the clients that I'm working in is um, that commitment to sort of, or just that acceptance that we don't really know what we're doing, we don't really know what we're talking about, we are interested generally and have will um, to sort of tackle racism across the organization, and that is really important, that's really powerful in itself. Um, and through working with me, it's just kind of creating those spaces where staff can sort of learn more about racism, um, sort of think a little bit more deeply around what it means, how it operates, um, acknowledge some of the systemic um, barriers and sort of systemic ways that the system of racism operates and start thinking about how it impacts, uh, so both how it operates within the organization in terms of working culture and how we relate to each other as staff, but also how it impacts our work, uh, what barriers it presents to our work, um, what sort of viewpoints um, are we missing because of lack of diversity. And that's been really powerful to see. I think it's really early days to see in terms of like, you know, transformative change takes a really long time. But I think at the very least, um, every, every organization I've worked with so far has taken quite an open approach to building an action plan, which really builds space for staff to at least feel that they've contributed to it and sort of um, to take the whole organization on a journey that we all kind of feel part of. And that in itself is a really positive um, step, um, which I hope will lead to some really amazing work. That's that's really good to hear. I guess my experience um, is on a bit kind of different perspective, I guess, within the sector as a funder, um, when I decided to take on this lens uh, as a priority within our portfolios, um, there were lots of white-led organizations, you know, that we were working with that weren't interested. And so I guess it's really interesting and positive to hear from you, John, that organizations, I guess, that you're working with on some level, they're ready or willing in, in kind of some way to do the work. Um, I have experienced a lot of pushback from white-led organizations, even considering the power dynamic of me being a funder and like offering money in return of them doing it. Um, it, it has often kind of been really challenging and we've done a lot of kind of active research on what it looks like to provide um, consultants alongside unrestricted funding and kind of add-on grants um, to white-led organizations. Um, 
yeah, re really challenging stuff. We're about to release kind of a blog post on our learnings kind of from that. I have found a lot of organizations get stuck in what they are presenting to be um, fear of what will other people think of us um, and not wanting to get it wrong. But actually um, underneath it, I, I think that is to cover up a lot of apathy. And underneath that apathy, I think, is a lot of other types of white fragility. And I think probably a lot of anger going on, you know, which comes back to the need of really needs doing this deep, you know, somatic work within our bodies because we're holding this stuff in our bodies. We feel it ignited, even probably people as they're listening to this podcast now, feeling unsettled at certain points, feeling irritated, maybe even feeling tired, wanting to switch off, you know, that can often be white fragility coming into play. Um, so I've experienced a lot of pushback from, from many white-led organizations, um, you know, within that work, but, but then also people are excited to change. And I think John, as, as you said, this takes time. It takes many years putting the stuff into place. You know, if we want to diversify the board you know that takes a lot of time and so we have to be patient within that work and we can't expect it to change overnight um you know I think putting stuff into action and just recruiting for more people of color in different areas of the organization can be really dangerous if they're coming into a very un what they experience as an unsafe environment with lots of white people who say on paper that they're ready for change but when that actually hits them they're not and there is so much microaggressions and unconscious anger and all of this stuff coming up. So as white people, we need to take a step back first and just internalize a whole bunch of it and really like buckle down and do the work before we can start to do that kind of um, tweeting, whatever kind of action we're kind of doing within the organization and, and trying to get those allyship cookies. <laughs> mm. I think I want to pick up on something that you said at the end there, because I think... Um, that that sort of pushback can happen so suddenly sometimes and I think um there's a really important part of that of just really acknowledging and thinking through what the stakes are in this work what does change actually look like what does it mean for us because I think a lot of the time what it comes from is you know if your organization has a has a diversity problem if you have an all-white board or an all-white sort of SLT group Ultimately, this work means that you will need to leave. <laughs> you will need to make space for that for that team to get diverse. You know, you will. This will have an impact on the day to day in that respect. And I think we have to be ready to face that ourselves. We have to value diversity and change enough that we want to create those opportunities. We want to help people rise through the ranks in the organization, or sort of bring completely fresh and new perspectives into the team. And that's the thing that often is behind uh, this kind of pushback and this feeling that like it somehow this work is going to come to get me or somehow it's going to kind of impact me in a negative way. And that really it comes down to just a, a sort of reflection of like white supremacy works for me at some level. So there's only so far that I'm willing to go in terms of trying to dismantle it. And I think that's a conversation we need to have with ourselves and we need to have with each other in a lot more detail. Mm. Yeah. And I think, for white people, I think that's why the accountability mm. uh, within community is so important, because if we're waiting for that time, for that right time to read that book or do that <laughs> workshop or, you know, do that journaling, that's not going to happen. 
there's never <laughs> going to be a time where we're like, mm, I really feel like digging into my inner racism today. Like it's, it's just not going to happen. So for me, what I have found is just holding myself accountable with other white people in groups. So I know, okay, this week, I know I'm going to do that work because we're meeting and going to reflect on our feelings or whatever at the end of the week, just putting it in the diary, like literally like planning it out. Um, so it doesn't get overwhelming because if we don't do that and don't hold ourselves accountable to others doing the work, we will stop doing it. We will just literally stop doing it because we experience it as scary and really uncomfortable. You know, John, just absolutely what you were saying, what is it to sit with the reality of as a white person losing that power giving that away, distributing wealth. If we actually want the things that we're saying we want, it means that we're going to have to make sacrifices. It means we're going to have to have really difficult conversations with friends, with family, um, and, and make sacrifices within that. Um, and the reality of that can be really difficult, and you need a support system to do that and to hold yourself accountable to the work because it's going to get uncomfortable. You've so smoothly led on to the, the next question that was around accountability and holding one yourselves accountable, but also others. Um, and I suppose with that, I'll just couple now um, that value that you guys mentioned earlier, as well as um, responsibility um, and where the responsibility lies for the work. I think it's been fairly obvious that there's work for everyone to do, but I think primarily for um, people upholding white supremacy to kind of do and unpack um, which could in theory be everyone as well. Like you say, it's an embodied experience. But yeah, just your final thoughts, I suppose, on yeah, accountability, value, and then responsibility. I think for me, um, there's sort of a lot of responsibility. There's, everyone has a responsibility to kind of challenge and tackle our own sort of internalized white supremacy and sort of um, interrogate our relationship to whiteness and racism and sort of think about how we help um, directly or indirectly uphold um, systemic uh, racism and kind of whiteness. But I think ultimately in terms of who, whose job is it to really sort of hold the accountability and the responsibility in terms of like transforming the organization, in terms of looking at how whiteness is built into our systems, how white supremacy takes hold across our recruitment processes and workplace culture and everything, that has to sit with leadership and a board. And I think, um, there is it's really important that we sort of um hold ourselves accountable to that um and sort of really hold those spaces and sort of see um value to sort of really changing and tackling those cultures and sort of really unpicking those wounds and sort of really looking into sort of what's going on in our organization and how does that need to change because i think what often happens is that in practice the accountability, responsibility, and sort of everything falls on people of color within the organization. You know, it's us that are seeing the problems. It's us that are living at the whole uh, sort of uh, thing of how racism operates within that organization. And it's us that are off, often pushing um, sort of for better conversations for sort of um, leaders to sort of tackle particular aspects of it. And I think it's time for that kind of expectation and that insistence on people of color to do that emotional labor to end. Um, I think there is a future where we all work together to dismantle whiteness and sort of systemic racism in our organizations, but it can't fall squarely on the shoulders of people of color anymore. Yeah, I think that for white people doing this work, firstly, I mean, couldn't agree more on, on, on the kind of leadership level and, and, and the board level within that. But I guess it, it gets me to thinking that it's not possible to separate the professional from the personal there's no such thing as being objective within this way. 
Um, it, it's just not possible. Um, but I think holding ourselves accountable to this work, first, firstly, lots of us fear conflict anyway in situations. Um, there are lots of different ways you know, to approach being as a white, uh, being a white person and uh, trying to do the right thing in situations. And we're not, and you're not always going to get it right. There are lots of situations ongoing that I will look back and go, I wish I did that when I did that instead. But that is a learning opportunity. So for me to think about, okay, hang on a sec, what was going on in my body when I felt like I couldn't say anything? Because I could, I had the power to, and I would have been hurt as a white person. I had access to that but something in my body was stuck and I felt scared and what's going on with me. So I need to drop into my body and really process that and take it to therapy. If, if you're able to be in therapy or with another white friend doing the work and make sure you're going back to those spaces where you can process and reflect. And obviously, you know, doing, you know, the books and kind of the workbooks and all of that kind of stuff, me and white supremacy, uh, my grandmother's hands, you know, all of those kind of books um, are fantastic to be doing, I think, in partnership with, with other white people doing that. Because um, I think it's one thing doing the professional plans. And again, it's, it's the other, because it's the everyday interactions where we are needed just as much as kind of um, those, those professional action plans. So I think having an anti-rate, a personal anti-racism action plan, um, meeting even quarterly with other white people to hold yourself accountable to that. And I have a template that I can share that I find useful and you break it down into different aspects of your life. And that includes the professional within the charity sector. Um, you know, within our workshops, we do role play sessions where we practice scenarios and we create spaces where people can bring scenarios where they got it wrong and where they can reflect and they can think, how am I gonna do it differently next time when this happens again? You know, so just making sure that you have a support system when you can go and reflect and learn because you will get it wrong again and it will be messy. But as we need to just be making sure that we're learning from that and we're not trapped in our body around the fear of speaking up and losing our social capital. We need to push through that. Um, but we need support in lots of different ways from each other, um, white people, in order to do that. Mm, definitely. Thank you both. I think that's really, really insightful and just so much to digest and um, just finally then I suppose there's a couple of things we wanted to ask everyone that, that joins us in this series um, so part one is kind of what piece of advice would you offer anyone listening in regards to taking positive action and beginning some of these conversations difficult conversations uncomfortable conversations inside their organizations um, and then the second question is around what lessons have you personally learned through doing this work that you'd like to share I think for me, um, and this isn't, I promise this isn't just a shameless plug, um, but I think uh, bringing a facilitator in to have those discussions is a really important thing um, because it is, it is an all hands on deck thing. It is something that you want everyone to be able to like fully participate and bring their full selves and bring that vulnerability. And that's a difficult thing to bring when you have kind of organizational hierarchies and sort of power dynamics at play. Um, so that does take work to sort of cut that down. Um, and um, yeah, I, I do this work. Uh, so do get in touch if you're looking for that. Um, but what I've learned as well is just, um, it's really difficult to hold that space. And I think like you have to give yourself um, the room uh, to decompress, to sort of take it all in, to really process it and think it through. You know, you're not gonna 
change and transform your way of thinking in just like a sort of two hour anti-racism session or whatever you're sort of doing it takes a lot of self-reflection and a lot of personal work to really tackle and really come to terms with like how these things impact your life whether you're a person of color whether you're a white person sort of whatever your relationship is with whiteness it really takes a lot of deep work so I would encourage particular leaders to really think about how you can build in that space for your workers and for your teams, because, um, you know, well-being is incredibly important and giving people that time to sort of, you know, you can have this morning to think about it or, you, you know, take the rest of the day off to sort of think about all of this um, uh, after the session or whatever it sort of looks like. But you, it's building in that reflection is vital and you're not going to get much out of this work if you aren't all doing that deep reflection. Mm. Yeah, I think it can be very dangerous to attempt to do this work without a consultant like John kind of coming in Um you know, and, and holding that space um, for the organization. Um, I think this work can also be very lonely and it's very painful. Um, so I think um, little and often, rather than trying to do something massive and then dropping out, little and often, it's a lifelong journey is what I've learned. And if you you know, speaking to white people listening, if you can just find one other white person to go on this journey with, um, it is tremendously helpful to have that support because there are going to be days where you feel really great and capable and you feel like you can do the right things and there are going to be days where you really mess up and you get things really, really wrong and you need that space and connection to be able to kind of process and learn and and, and process all the really uncomfortable, painful feelings coming up, um, you know, and it's, it's not all kind of really uncomfortable doom and gloom either. You know, I just, I don't want to kind of end on that, on that note. Um, I think this is a thing, do, doing work with others, not doing it alone. You need connection in this work. Um, it's, it's the most incredible thing. To, to discover what it is to challenge ourselves and, and to learn more about ourselves as humans in a relationship to others. Um, so I think little and often and finding even just one other person to do the work with on, on a routine kind of basis, not just like a one-off, um, I've, I've found so helpful. And um, yeah, I'll leave it there because I could go on. <laughs> No, that's amazing. I can't thank you both enough for your insights, contributions, expertise, thoughts, feelings and everything. So any of those things um, that you mentioned about sharing, please do send them through and we'll share them with all of our listeners so they have access. Um, and yeah, I just yeah really appreciate it. I think it's been a really, really interesting conversation. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. I'd like to say a huge thank you to both John and Lily again for their expertise and thoughts. There are many parts of this conversation I found interesting, engaging and also concerning. The discussions around white supremacy and the need to unpack and understand what the structures of whiteness look like within the charity sector, the daily impact that this work is having on minority ethnic colleagues who often lead this work and the need for leaders to be vulnerable when engaging in these spaces. And finally, the need for discomfort and honesty is vital for real change but we must ensure that spaces are genuinely safe for colleagues. I also came across another podcast that might be of interest, The Guilty Feminist, episode 271, 
getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. The next episode in this series will go on to look at allyship and getting your team on board. We hope you'll join us. But for now, thank you for taking the time and listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode and continue to enjoy the podcast. We'd love to hear either way. It's just left for me to thank our corporate sponsors, our platinum sponsor, Charity People, for enabling us to share insights, expertise, and best practice across our sector, Giant Squid Audio Lab for sponsoring our podcast kit, Magda Axmit for our beautiful website. You can check it out at charitychat.org.uk and Forest of Fools for playing throughout the show and for playing us out now. Thank you and speak to you again soon.